So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Let us tell you a story. But in order to tell it, we need to start at the end. It's 1973, and a 55-year-old man relaxes in his living room after a day of honest work, milking goats, growing algae, meditating, and maintaining his ecologically correct home off the grid in bucolic Culpeper, Virginia. He takes a sip of hard-earned whiskey on the rocks as he watches TV and catches up on the news. His wife, Margaret, calls to him from the kitchen, gently urging him, Sydney, darling, dinner will be ready in five minutes basically letting him know to not get too comfortable on the couch. Quiet, affable, Sydney darling chuckles. This is exactly the life he wanted out of retirement. He and his wife, Margaret, have plans to tour Australia, Africa, India, and even have discussed the notion of running a leper colony there to help those in such desperate need. Then he hears something troubling on the news. Something that makes old Sydney drop his whiskey glass on the carpet. Richard Helms, director of the CIA, has been fired by President Nixon, an apparent attempt to curry favor with political allies and the public amid fallout of the Watergate scandal. This is not good news for Sidney. But calm and measured as he always is, Sidney excuses himself from dinner, citing an urgent but minor work emergency. Even though he's retired, he still cares very much about his former career and his colleagues. And he gets in his car, and he drives. A few miles away in Virginia, Sidney arrives at a CIA archive, housing hundreds of thousands of pages detailing the agency's various employees, operations, and history. Nobody bats an eye when Sidney enters the facility. After all, he's been a company man for over two decades. Nobody considers it out of the ordinary when this odd man makes his way to the stacks. Sure, He isn't the typical CIA man, refined, waspish, Ivy League stock, but that's what lends Sidney his verisimilitude. He's not sneaky or snaky. He's just a man. Imagine the archivist's horror then, when quiet, odd Sidney starts destroying box after box of documents. They try to stop him, but he calmly explains that he's on orders from the director himself, well, ex-director, But who's counting these days? So the archivists obey with no other choice and aid Sidney as he ravages years and years of collected data. But in his efforts, Sidney makes a mistake. Unbeknownst to him, there are other records, expense account reports, loose documents, tucked away elsewhere in the archives and elsewhere in Virginia. If it wasn't for this minuscule clerical error, we may never have learned the name Sidney Gottlieb. We may never have known that Gottlieb, for years, oversaw one of the United States' most despicable clandestine operations. We may never have known about the horrifying medical experiments on American citizens and, quote, expendable persons, some volunteers, most completely unaware, that can only be compared to the work of Nazi and Japanese war crimes during World War II, only because that is precisely where Gottlieb learned his methods. If it weren't for this one tiny, insignificant mistake, we may never have known about MK Ultra, the United States' Cold War attempts at perfecting the art of mind control. How much did the U.S. really know about this secret operation? Was it a case of an overzealous agency man or a truly terrifying government conspiracy? 
how far are we as humans willing to go to gain control over those around us? And more specifically, what pushed this seemingly mundane man to orchestrate organized American cruelty on such an unfathomable scale? Like much of this story, there's more we don't know about these questions than what we do. But one thing is true. Sidney Gottlieb was the most prolific torturer of his generation that you've never heard of. History consists of heroes and villains, and I suppose everything in between. But it's usually the villains who are the most interesting. Their flaws, their quirks, the voids in their hearts that force them to do the unthinkable. These are the characters that fascinate us. That pull us in. That compel us to watch and don't let us look away. These are the characters that we're all about. You've heard of Al Capone, but what about George Remus, whose bootlegging empire made Capone's operation look like a lemonade stand? Sure, you know Billy the Kid, but while he was robbing cattle with a pistol, James McClintock was blowing up men by the dozen with his newfangled war machines. Never heard of them? Just wait. You'll see. And it's all true. Each episode, we want you to join them on their treacherous journeys to not only learn about what makes them tick, but more importantly, feel the times that created them. From the creators of Myths and Legends and from Cast Media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join with us every episode as we explore dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. This week, we're shining a light on a big secret from the 50s and 60s, known as Project MKUltra. Now, if you haven't heard about this before, that's exactly what the creators of this project wanted all along. It was highly secretive, and it was only because of a paper filing error that any of this saw the light of day. It's incredible. And what we do know comes only from the documents that survived the purge. This government-sanctioned project involved a lot of pieces and a lot of players— and you'll see today how basic fear and our inner drive as humans to be something and do something big, plus intense global situations, all helped create the perfect storm and a terrifying operation many found themselves a part of only after it was too late. Sidney Gottlieb isn't born a monster. Quite the contrary, he is perhaps the last person one would expect to commit the atrocities that he did. Born in 1918 to Jewish immigrants in the Bronx, Sidney has an affinity for chemistry and agriculture. He's a sustainability nut long before it came into vogue. He loves the earth and he loves nature because nature never rejects him, not the way that people do. Sidney is born with Talipes aquinovarus, club foot, earning him a limp that he is ridiculed mercilessly for by his classmates. Couple that with a stammer that he never conquers, and young Sidney is, unfortunately, a prime target. One can only imagine the bullying he endures, the way he's ostracized and excluded by his peers, how painful attempts at fixing his gait or his speech impediment leave him feeling worthless, less than, and in desperate need of control. Control. It's a word you're probably going to hear a lot today, and rightfully so, because control at the end of the day, is really what this whole story is about. The desperate attempt to bend other humans to one's will, to make them obey, make them accept, make them malleable. But for now, Sidney's just a young man in search of a place to belong. He attends City College in New York and then transfers to the University of Wisconsin, where he continues his agricultural studies under a man named Ira Baldwin the assistant dean of the College of Agriculture. Remember that name for now. Ira is going to be super important later. It's at the University of Wisconsin, under the tutelage of Baldwin, that Sidney really starts to shine. Maybe it's because he's finally in a place he feels like he belongs. Maybe it's that he's found someone who understands him. But Sidney thrives in Wisconsin. He graduates magna cum laude in 1940 with a glowing recommendation from Ira Baldwin as, quote, a high type of Jewish boy. Really nice, Ira, thanks. His accomplishments in Wisconsin, along with a glowing recommendation from Baldwin, earn him a seat at the California Institute of Technology to pursue a doctorate in biochemistry. His dissertation? Studies of ascorbic acid in cowpeas. I know, despicable stuff. But Sidney doesn't just excel in his studies at CIT. He falls in love, too. 
he meets a young woman named Margaret Moore, the daughter of a Presbyterian minister. And like the chemistry he studies, they burn hot and bright, marrying quickly in an unconventional, small civil ceremony. But then nothing about Sydney has ever been conventional. He's a Jewish Buddhist more interested in expanding his mind than his bank account, more taken by the rustle of wind through grass than the bustle of some high-paying corporate job. And it seems now he's finally happy. Everything is falling into place. Then the world goes to war. Imagine this moment. You're born into a post-World War I era. Nobody around you believes the horrors of that conflict could ever possibly happen again, let alone reach American shores. And while you have never felt fully in control of your own life, you've at least been able to rely on the belief that your world would remain stable, that your world wouldn't fall to pieces like it did before. And that knowledge allows you to pursue your dreams. Now, Imagine listening to the news as an empire halfway around the world arrives on your shores and rains fire from the sky on men and women just like you. We told you the idea of control would come up a lot. Well, think about it now. Would you feel in control? Or would you desperately try to find some semblance of it in the chaos? Sydney wants to enlist. He wants to fight. Sydney wants to fulfill his duty to his countrymen and push back against the axis of evil that threatens not just a far-off land this time, but his very home. And the rumblings and rumors of what the Nazis are doing to Jews in Europe only bolster his conviction. This man of the soil must become a man of war. But Sydney is denied his chance. His clubfoot bars him from enlisting in the military. His speech impediment makes it difficult for him to argue his case. He doesn't look like a soldier, so he's refused the opportunity to prove that he can be one. Desperate for another way to serve in the war, to prove himself, Sidney scours for government jobs that suit his specific skill set. He moves his family, Margaret and two daughters now, to Vienna, Virginia, to be closer to D.C., and he begins working at the Department of Agriculture, researching the chemical structure of various organic soils. Then... He moves to the Food and Drug Administration, developing early drug tests. It's honest work, but Sidney's bored. He isn't changing the world. He isn't winning the war. He isn't doing anything, really. Just watching and waiting for the phone to ring. And then the war is over. Of course, Sidney is ecstatic to know that we've beaten the Axis, and the good guys finally persevered, with the help of two atom bombs. Still, he can't help but feel a little guilty to have been sidelined at government desk jobs while brave men won the war for him. He tries to move on with his life. He moves to a job with the National Research Council where he actually finds work he enjoys, researching ergot alkaloids as hallucinogens. You might be familiar with these chemicals from the stories about the Salem witch trials. Modern science has come to theorize that an ergot fungus growing in old bread in Salem was actually what caused the hallucinogenic, quote, demonic possessions that led to the infamous witch hunt. Sidney himself describes that time as being exposed to some of the most interesting work in his career. He also moves into his dream home, an off-the-grid, eco-friendly cabin in the woods of Virginia. But he still wonders, when would he get out of his middle-tier science job and do something important? When will the call come for him. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. And then the call comes for him. Who's on the line? Alan Dulles 
the deputy director for plans at the Central Intelligence Agency. He's heard about Sydney from an old friend of his, Sydney's mentor back in Wisconsin, Ira Baldwin, who had run the U.S. Biological Warfare Laboratories at Fort Detrick during World War II. Baldwin has extolled the brilliance of Sydney's work and recommended him for a particularly sensitive project the CIA is working on. Of course, Sydney's intrigued by the idea of finally being able to get into the fray. But what is this sensitive project? What could an agriculture geek possibly have to offer the Central Intelligence Agency? Dulles doesn't answer over the phone. He simply tells Gottlieb to come to headquarters for an in-person meeting. This is a pivotal moment, not just for Sydney, but for America and for the countless people who are going to be unwittingly victimized by his experiments. Why does Sydney say yes? Is he bored with his research? Is his hermitage not as fulfilling as he thought it might be? Or is it more primal than that? Was this simply an opportunity for Sydney to have some control over his life? At any rate, Sydney makes his decision. He'll meet with Dulles and Baldwin, and that decision will affect the United States for more than the next 20 years. Sydney arrives at CIA headquarters and immediately feels like a fish out of water. Everyone here is different from him. Privileged, prep school wasps, Ivy League know-it-alls born with silver spoons and reeking of entitlement. They stare at Sydney as he limps his way to Dulles's office. They snicker at his gait. They wonder what this oddball could possibly be doing here, in this rarefied air, in this special place for special people. But Sydney doesn't care. He's faced men like this his whole life, knows how they think, what they'll do. And even if he doesn't know what this opportunity is yet, he knows he won't have it taken away by men like that. And then he's in the room. A closed-door meeting with Alan Dulles, Richard Helms, and Ira Baldwin. Or maybe it was just Dulles and Helms, or just Baldwin, or none of them. The point is, the characters in it wrote themselves out. Nonetheless, we know that a meeting was had with Gottlieb in 1951, and we know what that meeting was about. In the wake of World War II and the fall of the Axis, the United States found itself facing a new enemy, communism. Even before the end of the war, the United States had been clandestinely strategizing over how to best combat the spreading scourge of anti-capitalist, anti-American sentiment across not just Europe, but the entire world. In the minds of those in power at the time, there truly was no greater threat to American life than the communist ideology and the Soviet Union. By the time Sidney Gottlieb walks into that closed-door meeting, the fear and paranoia are palpable. But what is it specifically that they need Gottlieb for? As they explain to him in the room, the CIA is in need of a, quote, imaginative chemist, someone who understands ergot alkaloids, especially what Sidney had studied in school, an expert in hallucinogens and other organic compounds with psychotropic, psychoactive properties. They need someone who could help the United States learn how to control people's minds. And they need it now because they believe the communists had already done it. In 1948, Roman Catholic Cardinal Josef Minzenti, a vocal opponent of communism and fascism through the Second World War and beyond, was arrested by the new Soviet-run Hungarian People's Republic for treason and conspiracy. He was beaten, abused, and tortured until he agreed to confess to the false charges. When the United States officials saw his public trial in 1949, it shook them. They saw a once proud old man, eyes glazed over, mumbling confession after confession like a zombie. There was only one explanation for the change they saw in this man. The Soviets had broken his mind, washed it away, and created their own in its place. With the belief that their enemies had already mastered this insidious weapon, the U.S. government decides they must do the same. The CIA already had a clandestine operation known as Project Bluebird, which operated both on U.S. soil and in foreign countries, especially in American-controlled West Germany, at a CIA black site known as Camp King, where the lack of legal and judicial oversight made it easy to do just about anything they wanted. Employing former Nazi and Japanese scientists, 
the CIA paid them handsomely to share the research and techniques they gleaned from their human experiments during the war, otherwise known as war crimes, in the hopes that they might develop new, quote, special interrogation techniques. What this meant in practice was a routine of drugging, hypnotizing, beating, and torturing unsuspecting prisoners of war and other, quote, expendable subjects, people who no one would miss. Camp King was especially useful in how easy it was to dispose of the bodies of the subjects who didn't make it through much questioning. After all, the scourge of communism must be stopped. It was a demonic force that would swallow the world whole, against which any and all countermeasures were not just acceptable, but encouraged. It didn't matter how evil you were. It would all be justified. Now, they want Sidney Gottlieb to take it even further. The mission statement, as outlined in a later 1952 memo, is succinct, clear, and brutal. Can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will, and even against fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? That's what they want Sidney to do. This quiet man with a simple life. The man who wanted to grow algae and do yoga, milk goats and meditate. They want him to embark on a mission to see if he can develop the technology to control another human's mind by any means necessary. And here we find Sidney at another pivot point. He's given his chance to help his country, to make up for his inability to fight in the war. But it's no heroic act. It's torture. He's offered a chance to explore his scientific field without limitation. But it's the same kind of despicable work that the Nazis did on other Jews in Europe. And in fact, he would have to work with some of those very same war criminals, all in the name of freedom. But perhaps there's something deeper in this dilemma. We can't just think of Sidney the man. We have to think of Sidney the boy, the one with the limp, who had to wear painful braces or be carried everywhere by his mother, the boy who couldn't communicate with his classmates for fear of stammering and humiliating himself, the boy who lacked control over so many arenas of his life. Now, that boy is being asked to control what he never could, people. And the worst part of this? He says yes. On July 13th, 1951, Sidney Gottlieb has his first day of work at the CIA with the express mission of fixing Project Bluebird and mastering mind control, just like the CIA was so sure the Soviets and the Chinese already had. And Sidney had a hypothesis about how to do it. One must break and wash away a person's current mind before replacing it with another. They should have known it was impossible any rational person would understand that mind control is a myth. There are no chemicals or compounds out in the world that can be slipped into a drink or a tube of toothpaste that will turn a person into a mindless, obeying automaton. In truth, the only people who were ever, quote, brainwashed by the CIA were the agency officers and the employees who convinced themselves it was possible. Under Gottlieb, Project Bluebird pursues all kinds of avenues into mind control from the absurd to the unsettling. They learn from hypnotists how to put people into trance-like states, which some of the men in the department decided to try on a few of the female secretaries, to varying degrees of success. They join a group of interrogators known as, quote, the Rough Boys at Camp King in West Germany to learn their violent methods of torturous interrogation. Though that didn't quite work out, as the military-minded rough boys didn't particularly get along with or appreciate a scientific mind like Sidney's. But by far, Gottlieb's preferred area of study, and the avenue he feels most likely to bear the fruit of reliable, practical brainwashing, is pharmacological. Project Bluebird experiments with marijuana, cocaine, heroin, and other drugs, often on unwitting subjects, to see if the substances make them more malleable or more loose-lipped. They don't. They're curious if the withdrawal from addictive drugs makes someone more eager to spill secrets. It doesn't. Sydney, however, won't give up. Not against communism. Not on the country in its time of need. He believes with his whole heart that there is a, quote, wonder drug out there that will do everything they want it to do. Make people tell the truth. Make people do the United States' bidding. Make people obey allow them finally and fully to be controlled. Then, out of the mountains of Switzerland, 
Sydney believes he found it. A strange, ergot-derived acid piques his interest, a decade before it will spark a counterculture revolution that changes the world forever. LSD. Yes, the drug that defined the 1960s and the hippie movement, the same substance that convinced a generation of Americans to, quote, turn on, tune in, and drop out. LSD was first synthesized in Switzerland in 1938 by a chemist named Albert Hoffman, who was part of a large team looking for new medical uses for ergot alkaloids. The same ergot alkaloids Sydney studied in school. Hoffman created a new lysergic acid diethylamide in his lab named LSD-25, and then accidentally ingested it, going on the world's first acid trip. Upon coming down, Hoffman was forever changed. He believed LSD would be revolutionary in treating a myriad of mental and physical illnesses, a watershed moment for the medical community. Sidney Gottlieb believes it will unlock the mysteries of mind control. But unlike the CIA's general attitude of, quote, believing in the validity of mind control with absolutely zero empirical evidence, Sidney doesn't just take Hoffman's word for it. He tries LSD himself, more than 200 times, in fact. Maybe he thinks it's the right thing to do, to experience firsthand what he plans to put other unsuspecting people through. Maybe he's just a counterculture hippie before his time. It's a quirky little image, isn't it? Sidney Gottlieb, out at his off-the-grid cabin, tripping on acid while he milks his goats and teaches his kids how to grow algae and build outhouses. There is nothing quirky about what Sidney does next. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. With complete autonomy, a nearly endless bankroll, and a license to hurt, torture, and kill anyone in the name of saving the world from communism, Sidney focuses his experiments on the value of LSD as an interrogation application and mind control substance. Sidney finds volunteers within the CIA to take LSD and go through various tests to see how susceptible the drug makes a person to suggestion and interrogation. These experiments are inconclusive, but neither Sidney nor the brass at the CIA are willing to give up on their mind-controlled dream just yet. After all, they think the Soviets and the Chinese figured it out. Surely they can do the same. If not, do it better. The CIA renames Project Bluebird to Project Artichoke, granting Sidney more scope, more money, and more control. So Sidney decides to turn things up a notch. He wonders if his test subject's knowledge of the experiments are tainting the results. After all, in a practical field application, an agent wouldn't be administering this mind control wonder drug to someone who knew it was coming, right? Sydney needs to push his ethical boundaries further. No more witting participants. He needs to see how LSD can be used against someone who has no idea it's coming. Now, of course, there's the old tried and true CIA method of snatching expendables off the street and forcing drugs down their throats. But Sydney wants this method to be practical in the field, something an agent could do while behind enemy lines without suspicion, without detection. He needs his people to be able to do this as if it were magic. So he hires a magician. John Mulholland, brilliant prestidigitator and fierce patriot, is recruited by the CIA to write a manual for them on sleight of hand, deception, and trickery. We probably wouldn't have ever known about this strange turn as his instructions were among the documents Gottlieb destroyed, but copies were later found and actually were published under the title The Official CIA Manual of Trickery and Deception, 
So, with his people trained, armed, and ready, it's time for Sidney to get to work. It's 1952. An American named Stanley Glickman enters his usual haunt, Café Dome, in the Montparnasse area of Paris for an evening coffee. He's a brilliant young painter here in Paris to pursue a career in art, and by all accounts, he's on his way to a very successful one. He's also just met the love of his life, a lovely Canadian girl named Ruth Edelman, while she was in Paris on a grand European tour. He sips his coffee, wondering how in the world he got so lucky as to be worrying about how he'll possibly find time for love and art. Then Stanley Glickman is approached by a group of Americans he doesn't know. They're stuffy, suit and tie squares, not really the artistic type Stanley is more accustomed to. And one of them has a limp, the result of a club foot. The American and his friends strike up a conversation with Stanley, which quickly spills over into an argument about politics, patriotism, and the looming threat of socialism. Stanley stands and turns to leave. This isn't what he came to this cafe for, when suddenly the man with a limp stops him. He apologizes, offers him one drink, a peace offering. Stanley, unassuming, accepts and sits back down. The drink appears, and Stanley drinks. And Stanley's life is never the same again. The men lean in, fascinated, as Stanley Glickman suffers through a horrific hallucinatory episode. He runs home, sure that he's been poisoned. And when the hallucinations continue in the morning, he returns to the cafe, passes out, and is taken to the American hospital in Paris. The records say Stanley is given a sedative and an EEG at the hospital. This is not what Stanley says happened. According to Stanley Glickman, he is strapped to a gurney, given electroshock therapy, forcibly fitted with a catheter, and dosed with even more hallucinogens. And with the well-documented history of the CIA making backroom deals with local law enforcement and medical staff in the areas they operated, it is not far-fetched to think that the staff at this hospital knew what the CIA wanted to do to Stanley. His new girlfriend, Ruth, returns to Paris and checks him out of the hospital. But Stanley Glickman doesn't recover. He can't. He's forever changed by this experience. He breaks up with Ruth, not wanting to drag her down with him and lives in terror, never leaving his Paris flat for 10 months until his family in America finally learn what's happened to him and take him home. His physical health recovers, but his mental equilibrium never returns. Stanley Glickman never paints again. Why did Sidney Gottlieb target Stanley Glickman? Was he simply at the wrong place at the wrong time? Or was there something specific about him? His hepatitis status, for instance. Among the documents that survived Gottlieb's purge was a memo that referred to a 1951 Swiss research article about the effects of LSD on hepatic function. We now know that the CIA and Gottlieb were aware that LSD's effects were heightened in those who had hepatitis. Another CIA information report from 1952 notes that even a small modification of hepatic function will result in a massively heightened response to LSD. And you have to wonder, was this report referring to Glickman himself? Was the CIA really willing to throw a man's life away in the interest of making him a guinea pig for a casually interesting hypothesis? It appears that as far as Sidney Gottlieb is concerned, the answer is yes. But why? When faced with the physical realities of what his experiments are doing to people, the lives they're ruining, why does Sidney continue? Fear of losing to the Russians? Sure, that has to be part of it. In Sidney's mind, the communists have already mastered mind control. They've already figured out how to use these drugs. And giving up means handing the country over on a silver platter. But there's something else here, too. For the first time in his life, Sidney experiences an intoxicant far more potent and addictive than anything he can ever drum up in a lab. Power. He likes the high and isn't going to give it up over some poor painter in Paris. And when it comes to this drug of choice, Sidney wants more. His friend, Alan Dulles, now the CIA director, with whom Sidney shares a deep connection since Dulles was also born with a club foot, expands Project Artichoke further by ordering the formation of a new special project, exponentially bigger than its predecessor. It's the operation that will end all mind control operations at the CIA. 
Its name, MK Ultra. Armed with a literal license to kill with MKUltra, Gottlieb doesn't stop with Glickman, nor does he keep his activities on foreign soil. He recruits loudmouthed, hard-drinking, hard-drugging former narcotics police officer, George White, to direct, quote, Operation Midnight Climax, where sex workers on the CIA payroll will lure unsuspecting victims to CIA-paid safe houses in San Francisco and New York, where they are dosed with LSD and other substances and observed by agency men through one-way glass. Whatever happens to them after is not Gottlieb's concern. And besides, to the boys in the club, it's a blast. A memo from George Hunter, a self-confessed sadomasochist who certainly enjoys the more violent side of passion, reads, quote, I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the highest? Dr. Harris Isbell, a pharmacologist and chemist hired by Gottlieb, finds a literal captive audience to experiment on by way of seven prison inmates in Lexington, Kentucky, whom he unwittingly doses with LSD for 77 days in a row to disastrous consequences prisoners at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary are asked to participate in a study to find a cure for schizophrenia and then summarily dosed with LSD every day for 15 months. One of those volunteers, by the way, is notorious Boston gangster James Whitey Bulger. It's horrific what Gottlieb is doing to these people, and it seems out of character for the goat-milking, eco-friendly hippie we knew. Is it the drugs? We know that Gottlieb became a habitual user of LSD himself. Is he high when he's coming up with these experiments? Even more disturbing, is he high when he's observing them? Meanwhile, back at home base, Sidney hires a young idealistic chemist named Frank Olson on the recommendation of Ira Baldwin, whom Olson worked with back at the old biowarfare lab at Fort Detrick. It never sat well with Olson, the work he did there poisoning, gassing, and torturing animals for the development of biological weapons for the United States. But Baldwin promised him this would be different. He'll be doing real work, important work. Maybe Olson is the man who can turn MKUltra around. Just keep him in the back of your mind for now. Because the grisliest chapter of MKUltra is coming up. And it isn't on U.S. soil or in a Parisian bar. It's in Canada? Shortly after MKUltra is officially christened, Gottlieb brings on Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron, paying him what would be $600,000 in today's money to lead the, quote, Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology. The organization focuses on studying ways to cure schizophrenia, and Dr. Cameron wants to be known as the Sigmund Freud of his time. He uses an open-door policy for his organization, welcoming anyone off the street to be treated for their mental health issues. It sounds like a utopia. It is, in fact, a trap. As soon as these patients enter Dr. Cameron's facility, they cease being patients and become insects in MKUltra's web. Inhumane amounts of LSD dosed daily. Electroshock therapy at voltages up to 40 times the normal amount. Cameron pushes the boundaries of the human body with the belief that he can erase mental illness and rewrite people's minds. Rewriting people's minds. Sound like someone we know? And of course, these people never get the help they need. Take Linda McDonald, who checks in hoping to cure her postpartum depression and is subject to over 100 sessions of electroshock therapy. Or Helene McIntosh, who also comes in hoping to cure her postpartum depression on a brief stay and is instead committed to the hospital indefinitely. By the time she's released, she's barely recognizable by her family. She doesn't remember a thing about her stay there and is reduced to the mental capacity of an infant. It takes years of recovery for her to return to a functioning state, and Helene still can't remember that section of her life. There are dozens of stories like this, hundreds, maybe thousands. George White, Dr. Cameron, Sydney, none of them have any problem ruining life after life. And so far, nobody has faced a single consequence. But 
somewhere within the MK Ultra web, someone decides to speak up. The young, idealistic chemist named Frank Olson. The young man Ira Baldwin personally recommended finally gets to see what his lab work is going towards. And when he sees these experiments, he is horrified. And he is compelled to do something about it. Frank Olson is coming unglued. He knows now what his chemistry work is leading to. He knows that Gottlieb, heck, everyone he works with, is either tacitly or openly condoning the torture and murder of unsuspecting victims in the name of science, in the name of patriotism. Frank Olson trusted Ira Baldwin when agreeing to work in the CIA, that he would be helping his country, not committing these unspeakable acts. He can't do this anymore. He's tired, he's stressed, he's getting ulcers, and his conscience is in shambles. In 1953, he steps down from his position and leaves MKUltra. He'll still work for the CIA, but in his wake, rumors spread that he's going to talk, that he's going to expose them all. That's why Sidney needs him dead. Gottlieb invites Frank to a weekend getaway at a lake house in Maryland. Others on the team will be there too. It'll be a chance to unwind, relax, maybe rethink his decision to leave. And if not, it'll at least be a peace offering. Well, remember the last time Sidney Gottlieb gave a peace offering, Stanley Glickman lost his ever-loving mind. Frank doesn't want to be rude, so he accepts the invitation. Of course, Sidney has something up his sleeve, and it's not long before he informs his guests that their drinks have all been spiked with LSD. It's nothing major, he assures them. Nothing that will cause problems. He just wants to mix a little work with pleasure and see what happens. And the guests do what guests on LSD do. They hallucinate, behave oddly, maybe embarrass themselves. But at the end of the weekend, they all go home and return to their normal lives. Except Frank Olson. Frank becomes depressed, afraid, paranoid. He quits the CIA entirely and drifts aimlessly, unsure of what to do with his life. His friends and colleagues worry for his health, for his safety. His boss, Vincent Ruet, brings him to a psychologist in New York, hoping some help from a professional will ease his mind and convince him to stay in his position. Olson has a session with Dr. Harold Abramson, who happens to be affiliated with the CIA. The next week, Olson returns for another session with Abramson, and he decides to spend the night in the city at a hotel. That night, on November 28, 1953, just 10 days after the weekend with Sydney, Frank Olson falls from a 10th floor window of his hotel. Frank Olson is dead. His family is never allowed to see his body. It's recovered by the CIA too quickly. The autopsy rules the death a suicide, and his funeral is a closed casket. A suicide or not, I suppose we'll never know, will we? Except that we do. Years later, when his wife dies in 1993, Olson's body is exhumed from his grave, so she can be buried next to him, and they decide to give him a second autopsy, where they discover signs of fatal blunt force trauma on his skull and on his chest. And they aren't from the fall. They were sustained beforehand. The doctor performing the autopsy rules the death a homicide, not suicide. More details will be revealed in the declassified CIA documents about that night, including reports of a phone call made to Olson's room, whom he is sharing with his CIA colleague, Robert Lashbrook, who accompanied him for a psychologist appointment. Transcripts show that Lashbrook made an outbound call after and said the words, quote, well, he's gone. The person on the receiving end replied, well, that's too bad. Another report will eventually show that Sidney Gottlieb was the man Lashbrook called. Sidney stares down at the phone after he hangs up, and he grins. He looks over at his wife, fast asleep. He takes a deep breath of relief. The tattletale is dead. As he gets into bed, about to turn off the lamp, he looks over once more to his wife. Suddenly, the thought invades his mind faster than any chemical he's used on his countless victims. He thinks 
of Frank Olson's wife. She, too, is fast asleep right now, but will soon get a call that will change her life forever. Before the sting of guilt can catch him, he shakes it off, violently denying any satisfaction. He looks up and suddenly locks eyes with the mirror across the room. Looking back at him isn't the all-powerful 40-something-year-old, hardened CIA man. It's the frail child who's mercilessly teased his whole life. Sidney rubs his eyes. It's gotta be a flashback from one of his hundreds of acid trips. He looks back up, but the child is still there. He understands he needs to keep going. Sidney nods his head and turns off the light. So what does Sidney Gottlieb learn? What is the conclusion of these experiments? Does he find the key to mind control? Does he finally find a way to best the communists? No, he does not. These people suffer and die in vain. All he learns is that he can certainly wipe someone's mind away. He just can't replace it once it's gone. He tries and tries and tries again for years to no avail. Sidney Gottlieb fails in his mission. Not only can the CIA not control people, he can't control them either. Gottlieb retires from the CIA in 1973, believing himself a failure. He calls MKUltra useless. Useless. All those lives ruined and lost and useless is the best he has. He still receives the CIA's Distinguished Intelligence Medal, as if that will repair his ego or bring back his victims. Sidney returns to his cabin, and he tries to get on with his life. Maybe it's his guilty conscience, or maybe it's just that once he removed himself from the intoxicating nature of power and control, he returned to the quiet, sweet man he once was. He dedicates his life to charity and sustainability. He gets a master's in speech therapy to help children with stutters like him. He and his wife, Margaret, travel the world, landing in India in 1975, helping patients in a leper colony. And then, Sidney Gottlieb's ghosts come calling. He's given a subpoena to appear before the church committee, a Senate select committee authorized to investigate abuses by the CIA. Apparently, Sidney didn't destroy all the documents. Sidney appears before the committee under the alias Joseph Schneider. He's read the riot act, but somehow they avoid the subject of MKUltra, focusing instead on Gottlieb's side project of continually trying to assassinate Fidel Castro. He survives the committee by the skin of his teeth. In July 1975, President Gerald Ford officially acknowledges the death of Frank Olson and apologizes formally to his family, holding the CIA and the U.S. government responsible. Still, Gottlieb himself faces no repercussions. Enter the Glickmans. Remember poor Stanley? Well, his sister, Gloria, never forgot about what the CIA did to him and had been piecing information together for years. After Stanley dies in 1992, Gloria brings a lawsuit against Sidney Gottlieb, holding him responsible for her brother's death. Gottlieb is named to testify, but he never does. On March 7th, 1999, Sidney Gottlieb dies in his home, never having faced any kind of consequences for his role in MKUltra, except for the consequences he gave to himself. Did the CIA know about Sidney Gottlieb and MKUltra? Absolutely. Not only did they know, they condoned everything he did. It's a frightening example of how, in dehumanizing our enemies and seeing them not as people, but as evil forces to be defeated, we in fact dehumanize ourselves. Was Sidney Gottlieb a madman? Maybe. Or maybe he was a man, made mad, by a world that wouldn't accept him as he was, that forced him into the dark and into the shadows to find his peace, to find his sense of control. What can we take away from all this? A healthy distrust of the government seems to come to mind. Or maybe that we should thank our lucky stars for the Freedom of Information Act and paperwork filing snafus. We probably need to become better as a country at holding people accountable for their actions within their lifetime. Some of the people involved, like Dr. Cameron, died before the things they did were brought to light. Others, like Gottlieb, lived full and happy lives after the things they did were discovered. 
Some people we never even knew were involved. That's kind of scary. There's a bigger discussion here about the cost of progress. It's an ethical dilemma that has plagued most of modern societal evolution, from the development of the atomic bomb and the can of worms that opened up, to the cell phones we keep in our pockets that are manufactured through methods that we'd rather not think about. Whatever the intentions of the men involved in MKUltra were, the program itself was designed with protecting the American people in mind. The fear of Soviet advancements in biological weapons wasn't unreasonable. And yet, the program victimized countless, mostly marginalized, people and didn't actually yield any useful results. It was all for nothing. But what if MKUltra had cracked the code on mind control? What if the Soviets really did pose a legitimate threat in biological warfare, and that research saved us? Would all of the death and torture have been worth it then? As technology advances and has larger implications for the world around us, we all collectively ask that question more and more. One can only imagine what was going through Sidney Gottlieb's mind as he lay in his home having his final breaths. Was it the fear of being put to justice for his atrocities in the history books? Or even more frightening, what came after death? Was it thoughts of pity for his younger self, the boy who experienced a cruel hand, who in turn passed on that cruelty? Or was it them, the faces of the thousands of men and women whose lives he destroyed, all in the name of country, staring blankly at him, taunting him with their silence and their stillness? I guess we'll never know. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Jeremy Novick. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.